How do markets influence gender? Today, I speak with Akiva Malamet and Michaela Novak. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Sabine Chidiak, and today I'm speaking with Akiva Malamet and Michaela Novak. Akiva is an MA candidate in philosophy at Queen's University. Michaela is Senior Fellow, F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Today we're focusing on their article entitled Gender as a Discovery Process, Social Construction, Markets, and Gender, uh, which was published in a previous issue of Cosmos and Taxes. I recently spoke with that issue's guest editor, Lauren Hall, where we actually briefly discussed the article we'll be talking about today. So I recommend you check out that episode as well. So Kiva and Mikaya, Michaela, I'm sorry, I, don't, I, I typed your name as M-I-K-A-Y-A here for some reason. Our question today is, how do markets influence gender? Now, you start your article off by saying that you are fully aware that feminist theory is generally not friendly to markets. Can you tell us more about that, why that is, and what kind of a challenge that was when you were putting together this article? Um, yeah, look, um, so uh, sort of feminist uh, sort of theory will have a sort of a, a range of uh, objections uh, to uh, sort of markets. So uh, sort of one one objection they would uh, sort of express is the idea that uh, sort of markets are riven by relations of domination along sort of gendered lines. And uh, this sort of domination sort of takes on uh, sort of structural sort of properties in which um, uh, in which the sort of the, the structure of domination is is fixed. Uh, so the the objection I think we would ha- we would have to that perspective is that uh, there is actually agency in the world. Um, it, it is true, of course, that uh, sort of gendered uh, relations uh, may sort of uh, imbibe sort of some elements of uh, structure. Uh, so, of course, we're born into a world where sort of gendered relations, you know, sort of pre-exist, uh, and certainly uh, sort of different sort of cultural uh, sort of reference will uh, sort of have different forms of sort of meanings and shared understandings about what gender is, and that might be uh, sort of difficult to shift. But the elemental point that we're making is that um, some of these sort of gender concepts may be difficult to shift, um, but they're, they're not sort of fixed. Uh, and there is an element of agency. And, and one of the key insights from the paper is there's a concept that we coin uh, gender entrepreneurship, where uh, individuals along various margins, either in a solo fashion or in conjunction with other willing participants, uh, can actually experiment with uh, sort of differing forms of gender. Now, it's quite important for, for us to sort of explicate that uh, gen, this idea of gender is sort of distinct to, uh, from that of uh, biological sex, right? So there's that. So, so this idea of uh, gender uh, and gender can be sort of, um, uh, sort of manifest in a range of forms in terms of expressions, uh, clothing, uh, sort of life, various sort of forms of sort of lifestyle attributes. Um, these, we would argue in the paper, are subject to uh, sort of a range of marginalities of agency and innovation and entrepreneurship. And markets um, assist with this process by providing 
uh, forums for experimentation in the uh, the, the paper, certainly in the sort of the back half of the paper, we indicate a number of ways in which uh, markets can help facilitate um, varying sort of expressions of gender uh, through life cycles and across cultures and whatnot. Uh, not, not entirely sort of nullifying, of course, the sort of the structural kind of aspect of gender itself, but opening up sort of spaces by which people can actually express different ways of being gendered beings. And so uh, through sort of a unifying sort of concept of gender entrepreneurship, this can be expressed in various ways, such as the use of various consumption items to express uh, gender identities, um, the use of, for example, healthcare goods that can either affirm uh, sort of gender identities or help sort of vary those. And also, um, quite importantly, the use of commercial spaces uh, by people by which people can come together and collaborate with respect to uh, sort of gender experiments. So we're sort of thinking about, uh, sort of, uh, let's say, sort of um, bars, nightclubs and meeting venues for members of the LGBT community and other sort of communities, gender diverse communities where people can come together uh, and actually in, in their own little sort of marginalities of practice refute uh, the sort of the gender norms and stereotypes and vary upon those. And just so I can understand a little bit better um, the argument that sort of pushes back on yours uh, that you just outlined, what might these critics say is a system that might better facilitate a space for feminism and gender theory? So the critics tend to have a, a left of center view about economics um, and tend to be socialist, uh, most of them, and tend to see markets as avenues of domination, places where people who have control of resources, owners of capital, can uh, make decisions for other people um, and control their lives. And then that is coupled with the ways in which those people are also, also replicate structures of patriarchy. So they um, may choose male candidates for jobs. They may make preferential treatments for job, male candidates within those jobs, um, things like that. But then also in general markets as domains of exploitation um, make um, are precarious for everyone, but even more precarious for people who are already socially marginal. So members of the LGBT community, women, and so on. And I would love for you to lead our listeners on a journey of theory revolving around gender, basically from the nature versus nurture debate to the idea that gender is a social construction. What does that thought journey look like and where are we at in this journey today? So that's a big question. Um, mm. There is, and Lauren gets into a lot of some of the, some of the details with the, with you in the previous podcast, but um, you know, there was a longstanding debate about what characterizes gender um, what characterizes sex and sexuality. Um, and that debate, um, there were people who emphasized the role of biology, who see biology as sort of the paramount thing that defines who and what we are, um, in particular our gender, our gender or our sex. And for those people, there isn't really a difference between gender and sex, and we can get into that difference in a sec. Um, 
And then there are people who emphasize the role of culture um, and the role of culture in playing a, a particular role in defining gender and sex and culture shapes the different ways that people behave and influences them. Um, and then there's sort of a dialectic or a back and forth between those two camps about whether uh, we're more influenced by cultural or biological aspects in what, in what defines who and what we are and our identities. Um, and then part of the cultural debate um, is not just about the influence of culture per se, but the idea of social construction. And the idea for social construction is basically the idea that there is a separateness between individuals in the world, um, that when people create, when people relate to the world, they don't just see it through neutral eyes, but they put on it different ideas and concepts that then form the way that they understand the world and their relationship with other people. They also invent things that can help them relate to other people and connect with them. So things like gender, but also language, um, money, laws, different kinds of social norms. These are all things that are not natural to the world, but are invented by people as ways that they can interact with it, with one another um, and are products of their minds rather than products of the world around them. So it's, there's a law is very different from a rock or a tree. It's something that results from our mind that we invent, um, that we use to relate to one another. And so within the debate between uh, biology and social construction and, and, and culture, um, social construction, a social construction perspective emphasizes the ways in which um, we are not only biological beings, but we're beings that think and have a cognitive self-awareness. And we use that self-awareness to construct and build a world around us and build concepts and ideas. And so the way that we relate to one another is influenced as much by our thinking as it is by our physical attributes. And so the it's important to pay attention to that component of how people are in as much as it is important to pay attention to biology. So I'm somewhat of an agnostic about exactly how much biology influences us. I know that it influences us to some degree, but I wouldn't hazard, I think what's important for this paper is to, is to argue that biology is not the sole determiner of human characteristics, identity, and conduct. And to point out the ways in which culture and specifically social construction um, allows people to have a great deal of agency about who and what they are by inventing a whole ways, range of ways that they can think and behave. Um, hopefully that gives you some indication um I can, I can clarify more and and if i may if i could sort of add to that so uh essentially the the, the question sort of gets to obviously the uh nature versus uh nurture debate and essentially what akiva and i are spelling out in the paper is that uh we sort of take an anti-essentialist uh approach uh to this we actually observe in the world uh a range of uh, gradations of gendered uh, behaviour uh, in the world. And so that sort of suge would suggest to us uh, quite intuitively that 
Uh, so nature is not a determinative sort of factor here. Uh, so nurture, uh, aka sort of culture, can be quite important. Obviously, we're sort of socialised beings in our sort of cultural worlds, but uh, along various margins, that's not determinative either to the extent you have agencies and agency and, and why markets are actually quite important to this sort of whole story of anti-essentialism is that they provide uh, sort of open spaces for uh, resource and even sort of social exchanges. And so to the extent that markets inherently sort of embrace an ethic of openness, which is obviously sort of liberty compatible, um, this will uh, sort of allow various instances by which people who wish to do so uh, are able to uh, experiment along gender lines without, of course, refuting uh, the capacity of those who don't want to experiment at all to just remain happily as they are. So I want to start talking a little bit more about definitions before we get into the sort of meat of the conversation that I want to get to later on. So you talk about gender in this article as part of the theory of emergent order. Can you please explain what the definition of emergent order is and where that theory comes from? I'd also love that. I also love that you compare it to language. And if you could expand on that, that would be great, because I think it was a great example. So uh, emergent order is a, a hallowed concept in classical liberalism and in political theory. And so uh, the modern uh, origins of the idea of emergent or spontaneous order come from uh, Scottish Enlightenment figures uh, such as Adam Smith, Adam Ferguson, John Miller and uh, others. And so Ferguson uh, famously explicated emergent orders, those sort of passions in the world which are certainly the, the results of human action, human beings uh, actively and creatively act uh, in the world to achieve uh, their objectives, including, uh, as we just sort of discussed, senses of uh, gender satisfaction, if not gender authenticity. Um, but uh, the overall sort of passions that we see uh, in gender are not actually the resultants of any singular or instance of human design by any particular one person. Uh, so, so if we want, want to sort of translate that uh, into sort of simple terms or even with some economic uh, resonance, we don't think that uh, gender is actually the result of human design, aka sort of central planning. We don't have the gender police out there sort of, uh, sort of you know, telling a single agency, sort of telling us how to uh, be as sort of gendered beings and, and souls. Uh, we find uh, in the world, again, uh, a, a quite rich and quite spectacular variety of ways in which uh, people emergently from the bottom up uh, sort of collaborate and interact uh, with respect to gender to bring about sort of patterns uh, which, which aren't the responsibility of any single person, even those participant in them. Um, and, you know, I, another term I want to explore with you is social construction. At first glance, it might simply seem to mean perhaps values that society creates, but it seems to mean much more than that, having read your article. Uh, can you talk more about that uh, definition and what sorts of things produce social constructs? Yeah, so this is kind of my my wheelhouse, as it were. Um, I'm Some social construction is something that I'm a little bit obsessed with, um, only a little bit. 
And um, there are lots of different ways that people think about social construction. Um, my own particular formula is, as I mentioned earlier, simply the idea that we are minds that are separate from, separate from the world. So we exist within the world, but we are also self-conscious beings that um, examine and, and need to filter the world um, in order to understand it. And in order to make, to filter and understand and comprehend the world, we need to put the world into con use concepts and categories to break it down. So we notice a collection of these things we call rocks. Um, you know, like we might notice the thing that looks like a rock and another thing looks like a rock. And eventually we call them rocks. We put them into a category that we call rocks and that linguistic category or that mental, um, mental category is a construct. It's a thing that we invented um, in order to make the world more intelligible and more legible. Um, and so the constructs apply to the natural world as well as to the natural world. The whole idea is that we don't experience the world directly. We experience the world filtered through culture and filtered through language um, and filtered through the kind of attempts of our minds to grasp the world that's out there. Um, and so this is a very long legacy, and you might trace it back to per certain later later um, moments in the Enlightenment. And if people are interested, I have an essay on libertarian postmodernism that people might want to check out at libertarianism.org. Um, but Immanuel Kant famously distinguishes between phenomena and noumena. And phenomena are the things that exist in our minds um, the kind of ideas that we have within them. And then noumena are, is the world out there that actually exists. And there's a kind of break between what the world is and what's going on in our heads. And so constructs are an attempt to bridge the relationship between the world out there and what's, and the world within our heads. And so we have stuff that's, that are, we have rocks that are out there, we have our minds, and then we have an attempt to kind of understand what that thing is that's out there. So we call it rocks and we describe it in various ways and so on. And then in terms of how we relate to one another, um, we, you, we need to, humans have found that it, we need to create various kinds of tools, not only to understand the natural world, but to understand each other and understand how we relate to one another. And so we invented various kinds of, um, systems and ideas um, that allow us to communicate, to cooperate, to engage with one another, to express ourselves. And that has a wide range of forms. You can have social norms, which are a type of rule. Um, so social norm might be like, always say please and thank you, something like that. Or using certain cutlery at the table. These are rules that people follow. But a social but a, a norm is really just a sub a subgroup of construct, and a construct is just an idea, a social idea that uh, people commonly share with the community, and they affirm it to be true. And because they all affirm it and they all believe in it, it becomes true. Um, and so constructs are real, but they're real because our minds are real, and because our minds are trying to make sense out of the world, and be, we're trying to make sense out of how to relate to one another. Um, so like I said, it can be a rule, but it can also be ideas. So the concept of gender is an idea. It's not a rule. Um, or the concept of language is not, is not a rule, even though it has rules within it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, or the concept of a shirt is not a rule. Um, the, these are all ideas that are exist in our heads that we put forward that are commonly shared among us, that we 
construct in a social setting that we commonly affirm as part of a community, and that's what makes it socially constructed as opposed to individually constructed. Yeah, so would you see something like language um, sort of emerges? I just use the same word that you guys are using uh, in the in the article. Um, something like language sort of emerges based on things that happen in the world. Like it's changing all the time. There's words that now that like I hear that I didn't hear maybe 15 years ago that are now very widely used. Um, and you can't just say that's not a word because it wasn't used. It's not in the dictionary right now. It could be next year. <laughs> Uh, sometimes that's what happens, right? Like Oxford says, the word of the year is some word that wasn't even a thing 10 years ago. <laughs> and uh, now it's in the dictionary. So that seems to be something that emerges. Um, and I think that I like the way that you related that to, to gender as well. Yeah, I think I think there is a, a connection that we identify in the paper uh, between uh, sort of language and gender, both being a species of emergent or spontaneous order. So, uh, sort of language is, as Akiva has alluded to, is a, a tool, a convenient tool by which uh, sort of humans use to sort of communicate and to exchange ultimately sort of shared meanings to be able to sort of undergird sort of expectations in a very complex and dynamic and some, somewhat frightful world, right? So, uh, so language sort of has that function, but it's important to understand and we think sort of gender sort of has similarities here in that uh, so language doesn't have a sort of teleology or a sort of an end, uh, end purpose in itself. Uh, so language is uh, an emergent order, even one might dare say, uh, sort of a construct in which uh, sort of individuals may sort of import into that sort of broader sort of ecosystem of words and expressions and whatnot to be able to to vary those. And we then sort of uh, give rise to an evolutionary sort of notion of language. So observe, for example, and yes, I admit that, you know, the example I'm about to express is the subject of public controversy. Why? Because, you know, we actually live in a dynamic sort of world where, you know, people are actually trying to sort of understand uh, the way in which uh, sort of people are expressing themselves. So we hear about uh, the sort of listing of sort of gender pronouns, um, you know, by people who sort of wish to express uh, their sort of gender identity beyond, uh, let's say, sort of a binarized sort of male-female. Um, that, that, that in itself is a sort of a construct that has unfolded over sort of centuries of interactions by human beings. And, you know, to be sure, the binarized definition is, is going to be a sort of pretty, almost pretty much a rock-solid sort, of, uh, sort of category. Uh, for gender categorization, but uh, a liberal society, um, including one which sort of markets uh, the marketplace of ideas, if one might dare say, uh, has sort of a, a sort of an outsized role in our sort of social, economic, and political affairs, will be one which allows uh, sort of the evolutionary sort of changes of gender to allow people to uh, express. Um, various gradations of gender categories and identities without nullifying uh, the capacities of, again, of other people to uh, stick with uh, sort of conventional patterns as they see it in their own light. So uh, we see a lot of similarities between uh, language, gender, and other kinds of emergent or spontaneous orders, even things like money in the state. They all sort of 
tend to have similar qualities. The market, the market's a, a spontaneous order in its own right. These have fairly similar qualities. And I think the beauty of this paper is that it sort of translates some of the sort of venerable uh, definitional and conceptual constructs of emergent or spontaneous order to this sort of very interesting and quite essential sort of, dare I say, category uh, in the world uh, known as gender. Yeah, so you're actually uh, overall bringing the two terms we've just spoken about together by talking about gender as an emergent social construct. Mm -hmm. You also talk a bit about imposed constructs. What's the difference and how do they actually overlap with emergent constructs? Yeah, so constructs can be uh, of different orders, different types. Um, There are constructs that are emergent, as we've discussed, which is that people decide to engage in a behavior independently and then other people decide to copy them. And then that becomes a pattern. Um, There can also be imposed constructs where some central authority decides to make everyone behave in the same way and imposing a pattern and creating a pattern by imposing it on people, by making people behave in a certain way. So a good paradigm for for this is language. Um, You have language that people ordinarily speak, the way that people choose to express. And then you have like academies of language in various countries, like the French Academy of Languages in France is very obsessed with making sure that people speak proper French. But, and there are yes. certain ways that they, they choose, they, uh, that certain words that they like to use and they, you know, discourage people from importing words from other languages into French, especially English. Um, but very rarely do ordinary Frenchmen actually follow the Academy's guidelines, right? They make their own decisions and their own choices about how to, how to speak French. And the same is true for other academies of language in other countries. And so an imposed order would be if the Academy of French, France not only had guidelines, but was legally empowered to force everyone to speak in a certain way. Um, there's actually a really good... I can good, only imagine how that would go. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, and there's a very interesting implication that uh, Akiva is pointing out here with respect to imposed uh, imposed order. So uh, it may well be said, and and some uh, figures, for example, uh, Randy uh, sort of Holcomb in a uh, sort of book chapter from 10, 15 years ago on a uh, book about spontaneous order has indicated that there may be instances where uh, governments uh, may, uh, p- policymakers may observe uh, the the world around them, the constructed world around them, and seek to codify uh, a range of sort of definitions that uh, that are uh, the resultants of the observations that they make, and that might well include gender uh, or some other, a range of other attributes that might relate to that. So an example I'll give in a moment is about marriage. So you know, so government sort of enunciates a black and white letter. Uh, statutes, law, um, uh, or more precisely legislation, one should say, uh, in order to sort of codify uh, what is observed in the environment around gender. Now, so an interesting implication of this is that uh, typically government uh, sort of regulations and law um, specify a range of shells and uh, shout nots in obviously in um, in in sort of the written language, but it actually sort of provides by um, by the terms of what they don't cover 
uh, by the terms of what they exclude. They provide a sort of a, an imaginative outweigh, if I uh, may say, uh, for people to uh, consider deviations on the laws or rules. So, for example, let's just think about um, same-sex marriage, which is uh, the subject of the evolutionary um, sort of social, uh, cultural, and even legal process around the world. So there'll be uh, once upon a time uh, a range of sort of statutes either at national or subnational levels of government where um, governments is effectively saying that marriage is an exclusive preserve of men and women. So by definition or sort of design, um, by sort of providing this the, um, the exclusionary sort of call clause as to what marriage is, uh, it actually might encourage uh, some groups along sort of certain margins to imagine that, mm, you know, perhaps marriage doesn't necessarily um, need not morally apply exclusively to men and women. What about same-sex marriages? And you actually have a, an extremely fascinating history of undercover same-sex marriages that have occurred over decades, if not sort of centuries, including in um, LGBT bars and sort of other venues outside sort of officially sanctioned uh, sites of, of marriage where, you know, people um, uh, sort of uh, use sort of legislation as uh, a sort of imaginative outweigh for deviance of those uh, sort of legal norms. So if the government sort of says, well, uh, marriage is the exclusive preserve of men and women, there are going to be a range of um, people to the extent that, you know, gender is an emergent spontaneous sort of construct will readily imagine to themselves, well, uh, no, that that rule, that law won't apply to us. We, you know, we may be of the, the same bio- biological sex, same, same gender identity, we'll marry regardless. Um, and there are other sort of interesting sort of issues with, in relation to law and its exclusivity as it pertains to, let's say, the treatment of people of intersex issues and so on and so forth, even sort of changing of um, sort of legal um, sort of legal identifiers uh, for uh, gender diverse people like transgender people who wish to sort of change their gender identity, let's say on, you know, sort of driving licenses, birth certificates and uh, sort of a range of um, other uh, sort of legal identifiers. It's, it's, it's fascinating to think about uh, the effect of imposed order having the unintended consequence of leading people to imagine alternative ways of living, being, and doing. So uh, now before the break, I want to get to perhaps the most complicated definition of all, that of gender itself. Can you talk a bit about how you all define gender in this paper in relation to sex and in relation to social constructs uh, and as a normative category? And what does it really mean to be quote-unquote masculine or feminine? Um, uh, and where do we get those definitions from in the first place? And how do spontaneous orders of gender performance fuel the contemporary culture wars? I think that's a good way to frame the conversation before we delve into the entrepreneurship section after the break. So there's a lot there. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the most basic distinction that we make is simply that there is a difference between sex and gender. Um and so sex is a, bio, a set of biological characteristics. So men have penises, women have vaginas, things like that. Um, 
you know, and there are different certain chromosome um, arrangements. I forget. I think it's XX and XY. Um, one XY is women, I want to say, uh, and XX is men. Um, oh, other way around. Yeah. Um, yeah. So there are certain biological things that um, I that people that are that identify what people are. Um, but there are also social things that identify what people are. So the way that people behave, the way that they talk, the way that they move their bodies, the, the clothes that they wear, the way they arrange their hair, whether or not they wear makeup, um, whether or not, you know, what tone of voice they express, all kinds of, all kinds of complicated social aspects that are embodiments of gender rather than of sex and rather of their strict biological uh, components. And there's a lot of debate about whether you can coherently define sex and gender. Um, some people are much more have much more dogmatic views about there being very little difference. Um, some people are very much more relative about it and think that even sex can't be defined very clearly. Um, that's a complicated debate that is probably beyond the purview of our paper, um, but. Suffice it to say that for the purposes of our discussion, there is a coherent distinction, at least between biological sex and social gender. Um, and that that and that what we want to explore is the ways in which people use uh, people in society express their express their social gender uh, through a variety of mediums, most significantly markets, but they do so in all kinds of different avenues. Um, and that gender itself is a spontaneous order by which people adopt certain patterns of behavior, certain ways of wearing clothing, certain mannerisms, um, certain ways that they conduct themselves in the world. Um, and then other people choose to adopt the, either adopt those or act differently in response and refutation to those. And there's an, an, a, an emergent interaction uh, of how people choose to behave and choose to be in the world and that that creates different patterns of being that help constitute what it is that gender is in the world through the different ways that people choose to behave or not to behave in relationship to one another. Um, yeah, so in terms of um, uh, the sort of one of the questions you asked, Sabine, about uh, who who sort of uh, gets to decide uh, sort of gender categories, well, I mean, this is actually a really complicated uh, sort of process. So there are going to be a whole range of uh, authoritarian, authoritarian, authorial sort of figures, uh, such as uh, governments, uh, sort of uh, heads of religious orders and whatnot, who may well sort of make um, sort of varied sort of legal, theological, sort of uh, moral assertions as to uh, what uh, gender uh, may be. Um, most people may observe um, those are uh, those sort of classifications or uh, definitions which are imposed again that sort of uh, imposed element that we've discussed uh, sort of uh, previous uh, they may sort of do that uh, just out of a uh, a basic sort of convenience or they might sort of find some utility in terms of um, this sort of, a notion of a gendered sort of shared uh, sort of set of expressions and mannerisms uh, when uh, sort of, uh, uh, sort of uh, interfacing in the world, but in the in the end, our sort of story is that um, you know the the authorial 
uh, sort of definitions of uh, gender that might might well sort of serve as sort of focal points, at least sort of historically, are not determinative uh, in themselves. We there is a rich history of uh, sort of gender diversity, gender deviance, uh, where we actually have. Um, you know, quite clear evidence of novelty, entrepreneurship, the exercise of uh, dissensus, um, uh, sort of agency that goes uh, beyond the norm. I uh, can give sort of one sort of small example, uh, a contemporary of um, the, arguably in my mind, the most famous uh, feminist of all time, the first wave feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, a contemporary of hers was uh, the French trans person, uh, Madame uh, Chevalier Dion, um, you know, back what back in the 18th century, if not uh, earlier. So, so that sort of small example uh, is to indicate that uh, the non-determinativity of uh, gender is actually not a new practice. Um, we actually see historical examples, and in our paper, we refer to um, some of the more contemporary experiences by which. Uh, agency in an entrepreneurial sense uh, can release uh, a whole range of uh, meanings, uh, even definitions about what gender is in diverse heterogeneous ways. Um, I think that's a good place to take a break. Um, Stick with us. We're going to be hearing a lot more about entrepreneurship and gender after the break. And I'm looking forward to continuing this really interesting conversation. Curious Task is a podcast by the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Danny Leroy, Vincent Geloso, and Joe Aragona. Remember to follow us on Facebook and X, and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, now, I really want to delve into entrepreneurship and the social construction of gender, because I think that's such a novel, interesting approach to the study of gender. Uh, first, take me through what the theory of entrepreneurship is, as advanced by people like Israel Kirzner and others. Well, I mean, again, this is a, a, a large uh, question, and uh, there are sort of numerous contributors to the theory of entrepreneurship, not only in uh, economic guises, but also uh, culturally, politically, uh, so on and so forth. And and indeed, uh, sort of one uh, author back in 2008, David Posen, in a law review, uh, sort of quite fittingly said in a sort of title uh, to one of the articles for the, the Harvard Law Review that we are somehow all entrepreneurs now, given sort of the ubiquitous and uh, ubiquity and pervasiveness of entrepreneurship as a phenomenon. So, uh, so what we've sort of done is we've probably added uh, to, uh, to the sort of very multifaceted conception of uh, entrepreneurship by coining a concept of uh, gender entrepreneurship. And I think we're basically, in a nutshell, sort of condense this idea down to the ways in which, the diverse ways necessarily, in which individuals explore opportunities to discover 
new means of expressing gender. I guess there is a bit of a Kersnerian sort of theme there, uh, given that sort of Kersner's uh, conception of entrepreneurship uh, rests on the idea of an opportunity. So an, uh, an individual discovers or uh, learns about an opportunity in the world that uh, has not been uh, exploited uh, previously by their contemporaries, and they effectively simply just latch on uh, to that opportunity uh, in the hope of not only exploring something that is new, uh, interesting, uh, beyond the, the, the gender norm, uh, but uh, sort of might might yield some sort of benefits in terms of uh, sort of a shared recognition by some contemporaries that, oh, yes, um, this, this person's uh, sort of mode of expressing gender, uh, you know, seems to be a sort of more satisfactory way of doing so. Uh, so this is where uh, the sort of the concept of entrepreneurship comes in. Um, it's quite a sort of central theme in our paper because in the end, to the extent that we sort of recognise human agency in social construction and in the construction agenda, you have to have ultimately some notion of entrepreneurship that's operational. So you talk about anyone being able to engage in gender entrepreneurship since they are dissatisfied with an aspect of gender identification and take efforts to affirm or vary their gender. But isn't it true that some groups, especially vulnerable groups, have some serious roadblocks in pursuing this type of entrepreneurship? Yeah, so there are all kinds of legal challenges, particularly for transgender people trying to engage in entrepreneurship, gender entrepreneurship to change their definition. So, you know, um, ironically, people who are cisgender, that is people who are satisfied with their birth gender um, or their gender as assigned at birth, I should say, um, are able to engage in gender entrepreneurship to change the way that they in, they understand themselves in a gender wise. So let's say if you don't like the way that your breasts are shaped, you can get a boob job, things like that. Um, whereas transgender people who want to change their different physical attributes met and engage in medical interventions have to go through a lot of hoops, um, depending on the jurisdiction there's, you know, sometimes they have to undergo psychological counseling or there are all kinds of different things that pro block them from being able to physically alter their bodies in ways that they would find more congenial to their self-identification. Um, uh, but the same standard is not applied to cisgender people or people who are happy with their gender as assigned at birth. Um, and so the, similarly, there, you know, there is social pressure uh, for people, not just, there aren't just legal um, barriers to, for transgender people to engage in medical intervention, but there's general like social disapprobation or social disapproval of people drinking, breaking gender boundaries. So you might look weird, look, you might, uh, look negatively at, let's say, someone who appears male to be wearing, who wears makeup, things like that, um, where people who break what are standardized gender norms, let's say that women wear makeup and men don't, as a kind of, um, they're kind of gender rebels and they're seen as strange or unusual. And that decision um, creates pressure for people to stick within gender boxes and gender categories and for there to be less entrepreneurship, less challenging of the gender norms that are in place. Um, yes. And that would apply not just to uh, individual people who are seeking for the, who are seeking to 
do things for themselves, but also to commercial enterprises that might want to break with gender norms. Um, so commercial spaces like bars that support LGBT people and things like that. Yeah, that's um, that's absolutely right. What what Akiva says is really right on the mark. So there are a range of uh, constraints, so uh, socio-cultural that um, Akiva has very clearly uh, elucidated. There are uh, resource constraints uh, to entrepreneurship as well. And and the broad point to be made here is that gender entrepreneurship is not a, a costless uh, process. There are there are constraints. Uh, we do live in a sort of constrained world uh, where there are sort of varied sort of scarcities, including uh, sort of limited sort of bracketed sort of categories of gender that act as constraints. In terms of some of the, the sort of economic constraints, yes, um, uh, the sort of the, uh, the, the process of gender transition is uh, one sort of uh, very, very good example of an economic or financial constraint uh, in place. Um, but uh, along various sort of other uh, margins, uh, there are very much sort of low-cost uh, sort of workarounds uh, in terms of sort of uh, gender expression uh, that that can can exist. It's it's quite interesting to consider the the array of uh, relatively sort of low-cost, even so-called sort of bricolage uh, opportunities. So bricolage is a sort of term used in organizational and management theory it refers to a process by w- which people kind of pool uh, their resources in order to uh, sort of help bring about uh, sort of forms of organization and practice that they so want. So um, so the idea of uh, sort of clandestine uh, heterotopic sort of spaces where um, uh, people can express sort of diverse gender, let's say, in LGBT sort of bars, for example. Probably that's a bit of a stereotypical example, but it's a it's quite a good example where uh, people at relatively low cost can come together and actually sort of pool some economic and other resources uh, and actually engage in a range of learnings as well. Uh, about um, the the multifaceted uh, expressions of of gender. So, uh, so my the point in raising this is to say that uh, entrepreneurship itself uh, can provide a, a creative process of work around um, those varied constraints. Another sort of small example, sort of think about uh, referred to uh, marriage uh, previously. Uh, think about. Uh, the sort of the, the so-called hidden history of uh, same-sex couples that actually married uh, sort of without the approval of the state, church uh, and society uh, in the broad. Um, people are able actually quite creatively uh, in ways that sort of defy sort of social norms to be able to express their, their dif- differing sort of gender sort of preferences as they so choose in relatively low-cost ways. Yeah, there's some great insights from both of you on that. And I'm going to put my Ostrom hat on for a second and say that gender does seem to be something most easily understood as an individualistic entrepreneurship. But you argue that's not necessarily the whole story and that collective involvement 
is important as well. Can you get more into yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I thoroughly agree with the, the Australian point that you're sort of putting across. So one way in which uh, we've elucidated Australian concepts in our discussion so far is this idea of uh, sort of polycentric sort of spaces by which uh, sort of gender is challenged, negotiated, even affirmed in various ways. So what am I referring here? I'm referring here not only to the role of commercial enterprise in being able to give people literal safe space uh, to be able to express a gender, but also the role of government as well. Now, government can be sometimes affirming to the extent that they wish to engage in sort of reformist uh, ideas, let's say, with respect to, let's say, allowing trans people to uh, express uh, sort of a transitioned gender category on their official uh, paperwork. Um, but the state can also be quite repressive uh, in terms of sort of cracking down on uh, any sort of perceived deviance from gender norms. So we have thus a sort of a, a polycentric uh, environment uh, at, at work. Uh, and uh, sort of Australian insight is furthermore uh, sort of revealed by this, this suggestion that, you know, people can congregate together, including and particularly through markets, uh, in order to express uh, their, their varying uh, and, and diverse sort of expressions and manifestations of gender. Uh, we've referred uh, already to, on a few occasions uh, to this, this, this idea of commercial venues, commercial spaces, um, by which uh, people can actually get together, collab collaborate, co-produce um, alternative varying uh, expressions of gender. That, that's incredibly important and something that we, we hope that we've highlighted quite adequately in our paper. Yeah, and um, I want to get more into the uh, different mechanisms that you mentioned. So the first way that you identify as a mechanism of entrepreneurship is the use of consumption goods. Now, I love your focus on fashion as one of the main parts of this type of entrepreneurship such as the envelope being pushed by artists like David Bowie, who is one of my favorite artists of all time, by the way, so I have to mention him, <laughs> in the way he dressed, but also using fashion to undermine conventional conceptions or stereotypes. Can you elaborate on that and how markets actually allowed for the worldwide advancement of these practices of experimentation? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, sort of markets, uh, as your listeners will be very well aware, provide a cornucopia of uh, products, goods, and services. Uh, and the, the beauty of uh, sort of uh, uh, market uh, interactivity, market productions in an open liberal society is that people can actually uh, vary the meanings that are attached to various consumption goods. So uh, we can think about, for example, David Beckham and metrosexuality, which was a thing uh, in the sort of 90s and early 2000s. So uh, the, 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 the sort of reduced discomfort among certain men, for example, heterosexual men, uh, to be able to sort of use makeup and cosmetics right, in order to uh, sort of fashion their appearances, right? We refer to David Bowie, we refer to uh, Robert Smith, one of my sort of childhood sort of musical idols, you know, being able to use a whole range of um, products that might otherwise be signified as the preserve of another gender and to be able to use it themselves, to be able to express 
um, a different way of being a gendered uh, human being. We have Lil, Lil Nas uh, X as a, a sort of a more recent example of a, a figure who's using the bounty of consumption goods, the cornucopia of economic production, uh, to be able to uh, express gender identities in ways that might sort of deviate or might otherwise vary uh, from those that might be conventionally understood. So uh, what, what's, the, what's the critical sort of common thread here? So uh, consumption goods can be used to socially signify who you are as a gendered being. So second, you identify health and care goods as another way to realize gender discovery. Can you get into that, please? Yeah, so with respect to healthcare, and I mentioned this earlier when I talked about medical interventions, people can not only change, let's say, their the kind of, um, let's say, the more superficial and more ex- basic exterior um, parts of their of themselves to communicate gender identity. So not just clothing or makeup, but they can also make medical interventions. They can change their physical appearance, um, where they can. Um, cisgender people can do this as well. Um, as I mentioned, they, um, men can get testosterone to increase the amount of, uh, let's say, hair that they grow or the physical uh, structure of their torso and so on. Um, the way the fat is distributed along your body um, is affected by the amount of testosterone or estrogen that you can get. Um, and there are people who do this both cisgender and transgender people do this in order to affirm some particular form of gender identity, and that changes the structure of their bodies. So uh, hormone replacement therapies and so on, um, surgeries to change your genitals, um, all kinds of different things that people can do to um, more radically alter the physical structure of their bodies that has a lot of potential um, not only for affirming a gender identity, but for overall a affirming identity in general and for tra- sorry, transforming your body into some more ideal type that you might have in your head about who you w- would like to be. And this allows a lot of crossover, I should mention, the same issue that we're in. Uh, Jason Kuznicki has a great essay on gender identity and transhumanism um, and showing how um, gender identity, sorry, gender in- medical interventions can be ways of us going beyond the sort of regular confines of our physical bodies to adapt and modify ourselves in all kinds of interesting ways. Yeah, so I'd like to sort of add add to that. Everything that uh, Akiva says is is very well put. So I'll, I'll sort of uh, add a sort of broader context that uh, sort of we as a sort of human species have necessarily sort of, uh, uh, sort of changed in uh, along sort of several dimensions due to sort of biotechnical sort of innovations through the healthcare system, through nutrition, uh, and so on and so forth, all of which are sort of undergirded and supported by the market. Uh, Akiva makes the excellent point that uh, sort of healthcare goods not only allow individuals who wish to do so to actually vary uh, their sort of uh, their gender construct, if you will, but also importantly to affirm uh, if if they sort of so wish. I mean, this is this is incredibly important. We are all engaging in 
uh, in, in various sort of technologies, uh, including sort of healthcare technologies that uh, can either affirm our gender or vary upon it. And as a sort of brief aside, which might be of oh, some interest to uh, sort of listeners in uh, Canada, given sort of your, your socialised sort of uh, public health system, uh, there is the existence of tourism around the world, low-cost tourism uh, provided by, entrepreneurship, by, by entrepreneurs that provide lower-cost avenues for people through a whole range of cosmetic surgeries to either affirm or vary their gender. So this is a nice little example as to how entrepreneurship in the health space uh, can actually sort of support gender identity in varied ways. Yeah, and I think that's a good response to an argument of like the for-profit procedures you mentioned might be economically out of reach for people, leading to sort of a harmful state in which they can't really affirm their identity in that physical way. Um, so I think that that provides a very good response to that criticism. Uh, finally, you identify commercial spaces as a category of gender entrepreneurship. Um, that's uh, one that I hadn't thought about much in the past. I really enjoyed reading that part of your article. Uh, can you please expand yeah, on that? Absolutely. So so what, what sort of inspires us here to sort of think about uh, commercial spaces as necessarily social spaces by which people can uh, express gender identity is from a range of works by the economic sociologist uh, Virgil Storr, who's a colleague of mine uh, here at George Mason University. And so he, um, he has really put together a, a very impressive research agenda, which uh, sort of, uh, un which uh, explicates or reinforces the, the, the extra economic, the non-economic uh, dimensions of markets. Markets do provide uh, some not only moral training grounds uh, by which we can cooperate more effectively, but they also provide spaces by which people can get together. Uh, and so it was really on that sort of the latter basis upon which we, we sought to apply this idea of gender entrepreneurship. So thinking about uh, entrepreneurs providing a range of commercial venues, premises, sites, uh, even so not-for-profit organisations do similar things, provide, uh, for example, meeting halls for uh, people, including people who uh, wish to sort of uh, express gender in heterogeneous ways. And so here, here we have a sociological dimension of markets Gender entrepreneurs are actually facilitating uh, the use of commercial premises, sites and opportunities. Uh, it could be things like festivals and, for example, let's say the Sydney Lesbian and Gay Mardi Gras or sort of similar uh, sort of festivals, uh, pride festivals in North America, uh, through which people can associate together, uh, on, including on the basis of gender, and they are free to either affirm or vary, and that's the beauty of liberal society, people coming together, a very much a relational idea at work. So one thing um, that I thought about while I was reading that part of your paper was ballroom culture. Um, and, you know, you can read about that going as far back in the U.S. culture as the mid-1800s, so it isn't just a recent phenomenon. And I feel like that's a huge example of renting a safe space to discover gender and using fashion to do that as well. And that tradition continues in a different way. Uh, and it's much more mainstream, I'd even venture to say. Um, but and one thing that I think uh, pushes all these three together as well, just sort of 
uh, lines them up together, those three that you just identified, um, and things like ballroom culture and all of that, is that it's not just it important. It's very important that it is a way to affirm or vary one's gender. But the other aspect of that uh, that's very important too is just pushing back on on the mainstream culture and having that way of uh, of you know causing dis of, of being able to dissent um, and having those tools to dissent against the mainstream culture that is often very oppressive um, to these minority groups. So um, I think that's a really important thread that goes through your whole paper as well. Yeah. The, the, uh, whole, um, sorry, go ahead. the, the whole um, need for alternative spaces, I think is the, is a, is a continuing um, theme in our paper. And one of the things that markets do is they allow people to use resources in a variety of ways, right? So if you have a collectivized economy, um, everything has to be oriented towards one particular set of goals because there's a kind of grand plan in mind. Whereas in a market economy, entrepreneurs and individuals can use capital goods um, and use, use resources to engage in a wide variety of different experiments um, what John Stuart Mill would call experiments in living, ways of being, um, and can try to, um, again, experiment and, and, and try new ways of doing things. And so the, the, the distribution of capital across the markets in, way, in which people through their, in their own private domain can create their own uh, products or spaces is really crucial and essential. And it's very, it's, I think significant that it occurs through markets and through the through private property because this can only occur in a situation in which resources are widely distributed. Yeah, so um, we're getting to the end of our conversation, but before we close, um, speaking of dissent, I wanted to emphasize the importance of your point of view of markets as an avenue for dissent uh, when it comes to gender. Can you summarize that before we end the episode today? And why is this such an important topic for classical liberals in particular? Yes, I think this is an extremely important point. And to be fair, it's actually not a new point. Uh, there's an underlying sort of spirit of this paper uh, in the sort of the, the scholarship, I, I would uh, even say, of uh, the, the late British classical liberal Samuel Britton, who wrote a, a famous paper about uh, liberalism and the permissive society. Uh, as to how through liberalism and markets, most importantly, as a central uh, construct or a central feature of liberalism, uh, enable people to uh, practice varying and diverse and even dissenting ways of being, knowing and and doing. And to the extent that markets remain sort of open and competitive and allow for uh, entries of all sorts of entrepreneurs, including gender entrepreneurs, uh, then uh, we'll actually have a very vibrant uh, sort of architecture of uh, practice uh, around gender, uh, which is uh, more and more to the satisfaction of um, all human beings uh, to the extent that uh, we wish to sort of observe and adhere uh, to our own uh, sort of uh, precepts with respect to gender. 
Um, I'm sad that we have to end this conversation because I'm having so much fun talking about it. <laughs> but uh, we've talked about a lot. So let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on the our exploration of the question. So let me ask you both, uh, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on how markets influence gender? So I think... Um, one of the main takeaways is simply that markets are incredibly powerful avenues for gender expression, that they provide avenues of people to dissent and uh, try to break with existing norms, that they allow people to use capital and resources in a variety of diff diff diffuse experimental ways, um, and that contrary to the kind of exploitational narrative that is often associated with markets, that markets are actually can be quite empowering and allow people to explore their gender through the use of the products, the commercial sites, the healthcare opportunity, the healthcare interventions that are created by um, the by the engine of markets and by capitalist enterprise. Michaela, would you like to add anything to that? Oh, absolutely. I I think that is a really lovely uh, summation of the the paper. And what I would add to that uh, is is to say to uh, to the extent that sort of markets are vibrant and open and operative, they provide a very important pathway uh, by which uh, relations of domination are actually minimised and suppressed. So there is an underlying sort of theme here of uh, sort of markets actually empower uh, sort of the idea of the instantiation of liberalism in society by uh, corroding uh, gendered relations of domination. And so really, we actually provide a very powerful counter uh, to the stereotypical sort of feminist uh, narrative that somehow markets are oppressive. No, not at all. Uh, sort of markets are liberating and emancipatory, uh, including for those who wish to express uh, varied sort of ways of gendered being, knowing and, and doing. And this is something that uh, should be a sort of laudatory. Amazing. Thank you so much for being with me uh, here on the podcast today and having this conversation with me. I really enjoyed Thanks, it. Thanks, Sabine. Thanks, Akiva. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you both. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode is produced by Sabine Alchidiak and Eric Sagan. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Wilkenford. You should check out his music online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Sabine Alchidiak. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Mm -hmm.